So good morning, good evening, good uh, evening, everyone. This is Abhinav Agarwal, and welcome to the sixth episode of uh, the Swaraj Q and A in collaboration with the Indic Academy. Today, we have Sanjeev Sanyal, economist, cartophile, endologist, itinerant, and author, joining us from Singapore. Sanjeev's fourth book came out recently, "The Ocean of Churn: How the Indian Ocean Shaped Human History." In many ways, uh, I would say this is possibly a more ambitious and more expanded sequel to his second book, "The Land of the Seven Rivers," which released in 2012. Welcome, Sanjeev. Hi. In in the Land of the Seven Rivers, you attempted to bring out the connection between India's geography and its history, and in my opinion, succeeded quite brilliantly. In the Ocean of Churn, you expand your horizons, pun completely unintended. Even when looking at the expanse of geographies spanning thousands of miles, the fulcrum of human history in this region still seems to center around India. And in ways, the reader—and at least I certainly had not quite known completely or imagined—and there are several other strands that I want to touch upon. So let's get started. The first question is continental versus coastal. You write about it. You mentioned this theme itself, and. you touch upon it in your in 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 your introduction itself and then you keep coming back to it again and again in your book can you elaborate what you mean by this and what may explain this continental fixation with our historians because your scope is more coastal and in no ways less important than you know the so called continental fixation so do you want uh, do you want to elaborate on, on what you mean yeah sure i mean as i've written right at the beginning of the book um, there are two very broad uh, what should i say biases that i have tried to deal with so one is uh, of course uh, more discussed about which is the bias of the fact that bajwa history is written with a very western perspective almost colonial perspective um this of course i've tried to undo partly by writing the story deliberately from the perspective of people in the indian ocean region particularly an indian perspective but there is a bias even in those indians who write about uh india so it's not like just because we are writing our history we don't have our own biases there's of course the nehruvian bias there is the well known uh, marxist biases that have accumulated over time but there is also a peculiar bias uh, which nobody talks about which is a very continental inland bias which uh, oddly enough is a bias that has crept into our history uh, into our history writing after independence um if you read pre-independence histories they actually have much more coastal uh, stuff in them uh, possibly because the british themselves were uh, maritime but after independence uh, there is this peculiar delhi centric it's not even con- con- just continental it's it's peculiarly delhi centric view of history and which basically wipes out large parts of the country um and particularly the coasts so you have for example you know you hear nothing about the you know great um you know maritime tradition of odisha or of the kerala coast um you virtually hear nothing about the you know the pallavas and the satvahanas and so on so there is this massive bias but incidentally this problem arises with other parts of the country as well i mean the northeast is also wiped out of our history books which i have not dealt about in this book uh, but uh, but you know uh, there is this real problem with our history writing which is written as if you know delhi rules everything and everybody else must uh, exist as uh, you know provincials so yeah. you know related to that uh, 
in in throughout your book uh, you know while you do cover geographical uh, uh, you know and and historical events the one uh, one strand that ties almost all of those events uh, seems to be commerce and you know i may well be putting words in your mouth but uh, was it a deliberate choice or is it just the way that the history flowed uh, when when you did your research and how useful was it wearing your economist's hat when researching and writing this book um yeah commerce is very important uh, and uh, unfortunately again another bias of our history is we write our all our history as if all history is political there are other ways of thinking of history you can think of history in terms of rise and fall of cities which is something i deal with in land of seven rivers or you can talk in terms of uh, commercial links and yes of course my work and training as an economist is very useful there are many linkages i bring out in my books which perhaps historians would not find interesting but as an economist i find very interesting um and of course uh, i'm also an urban economist so if you read my books you will hear echoes of you know how cities evolved you know sometimes explicitly sometimes implicitly so yes it's a, it's certainly an important part of uh, what uh, what i write about and yes my uh, training as an economist definitely helps but it also helps in another way uh in that if if you look at my writings as an economist you will see this use of a framework called complex adaptive systems uh which uh, pervades a lot of my writings not just uh, on history but economics my writings even on hinduism you find it turning up so uh, of course i apply that uh, framework in this book uh, much more explicitly than i have uh, maybe in the previous book so i have a question that i will get to later on in this uh, webinar on uh, you know on urban uh, centers but uh, to get it to sort of you know so to say the meat of uh, of the questions one is that uh, and i'm deliberately not going to talk about ashoka because you have written about it in swarajya and then uh, in at, you know in some length in your book also and i would rather that people you know read that uh, but my question is that Why is an emperor who sacked the Mauryan Empire less than a hundred years after Ashoka's ravaging of Kalinga, and an emperor who defeated the Satvahanas, the Pandyas, and the Indo-Greeks missing from our history texts? I, uh, you know, certainly don't recall reading about uh, this emperor during my uh, school days, and I am, of course, as you will uh, realize, I'm referring to Tharavela. Do you want to tell uh, our, our viewers a little bit about uh, you know this king and? and and uh, you know why he should merit more, uh, um, uh, a mention in our books uh, you know as opposed absolutely. to ashoka uh, absolutely i mean i think kharavela is a very important character uh, i mean uh, he's quite obviously at at his height he was the most powerful person in the sindian subcontinent uh, he was pretty much defeated everybody around him and very importantly he put an end to the mauryan empire really and not only did- and not only does he do that i mean he brags about it in an inscription which he deliberately places in front of one of ashoka's inscriptions so he's a very very important character in indian history um but in many ways is very inconvenient to the narrative of ashoka being this great king who was then sort of almost forgiven by everybody because he became such a nice pacifist at the end of the uh, everything so he doesn't he he clearly doesn't fit that story so if you go and read the the inscriptions he he clearly revels in the fact that he sacked uh, 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 patiliputra but also you know he mentions very clearly 
Vedic rituals that he carries out. He mentions Jain rituals. And then he clearly leaves out all mention of Buddhist uh, um, uh, uh, rituals of any kind, uh, suggesting again, uh, perhaps indirectly, uh, what he's trying to do. So you see, it is very inconvenient to this story of uh, the Ashoka, his conversion to Buddhism, the fact that he became a, Buddha, uh, became a pacifist, and that somehow he created this template on which um, you know, the, you know, we now in modern India must try and uh, build uh, our own uh, republic. Uh, and I feel that it was very inconvenient to that. So I think that is part of the reason it was wiped out. But of course, another part of it is simply that, you know, Uisa doesn't exist anywhere in our history books. I mean, it's quite possible to have uh, studied history to a fairly advanced level in India and never have bothered to read anything about uh, Kalinga other than that one mention about uh, the raid by Ashoka. So it's, it's a combination of factors. But, you know, there are other major characters in Indian history that have been wiped out. I mean, the Satvahanas, for example, ruled the southern half of India for hundreds of years, a lot longer than, say, the Mughals ruled India. And there's plenty of stuff left over from them. But, you know, there's almost nothing said about them uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, I could keep, give you a long list. I mean, Karavela's, uh, you know, in very good company as far as uh, edited uh, parts of history are concerned. <laughs> So let's uh, let you know. Let's take a let's broaden our horizons and go out of India. I'll I'll you know, return back to India. But uh, uh, you have uh, described in your book India. Uh, well, India is often described as a patriarchal society. But in your book, you write that uh, matrilineal genealogies played an important role, whether it was the Nayars in Kerala or the Bunt uh, of uh, Karnataka or or whether the founding of the Funan kingdom in the Mekong Delta and the Mekong River is the seventh you know, longest river in, uh, in Asia. And there is a fascinating, fascinating history of how this Mekong Delta was the scene of the founding, you write, of the first Indianized kingdom of Southeast Asia. And the fascinating part for me was that it's a story involving a Naga princess who's a pirate of all things, and a handsome Brahmin boy. Absolutely. So, you know, it completely overturns many views. One is this whole idea of, you know, this patriarchal uh, society that is sort of running everything and so on. In fact, much of Indian history is matrilineal. Uh, and occasionally the women also run the show. I mean, men, there are significant numbers of rulers, important rulers through history. I don't even, you know, I mentioned a few in my book, but there are plenty of others who I have not. I mean, Ahilya Bhai Holkar, for example, who have, you know, I didn't put it in the book, but there are numerous such examples. So there are, so this unfortunately, again, has not historically fitted into the storyline and has been, you know, simply left out. Um, and I sort of thought it, it, it gave a much richer feel of what was really going on in the ancient and medieval world to bring this back together. And um, of course, there is also this feeling that, you know, uh, there were these great caste rules that eternally stopped, uh, say, upper caste from crossing the seas. Whereas, ironically, uh, you know, whatever we know about Southeast Asian history actually starts with a Brahmin boy who makes his way to Southeast Asia. So let me actually recount the story, just uh, because I think it's a beautiful story. So it's, it's a story that is commonly recounted in Southeast Asian um, tales about the origins of their kingdoms and dynasties and so on. 
And interestingly, this, uh, the, the, the first place where this Indianized kingdoms began to sort of pop up, um, perhaps somewhere in the range of the second century BC, uh, happens not in countries that are close to us, as you may think, like Indonesia or something. It happens actually quite far out in southern Vietnam or Cambodia. And the story goes, um, and there are variations of it, but I will give you uh, one, one general uh, storyline, which is that there was an Indian merchant ship sailing along the Mekong Delta um, at some point in time, perhaps in the second century BC. And it was attacked by local pirates. And so um, obviously they were in panic when a uh, Brahmin boy who was traveling along in that ship uh, called Kondinya, he organized the uh, ship crew and he fought back the pirates. Now there was a problem because the, although they had beaten back the pirates, uh, the ship now was leaking. So they had to take the ship and ground it on the shore. And when they were on the shore, they were surrounded on all sides by uh, perhaps the same pirates or a local tribe. But anyway, they were a local Naga tribe, a serpent tribe, which had surrounded them. And things looked quite dire. When uh, Kondenya, of course, again, the brave boy he was, organized a defense uh, uh, and, you know, he was going to fight back. But, you know, things looked pretty dire. When suddenly the leader of the, of the Naga tribe, who was a princess called Soma, uh, saw Kondenya and fell in love. And rather than attack the, uh, the, the Indians, uh, she proposed marriage to Kondenya. Now, I pres presume that uh, Ondinia didn't have too much choice in the matter, but he accepted the offer and they got married. And not only did they get married, they set up a kingdom which would grow on to become the kingdom of Funan and later on would become on one side, the kingdom of Champa in Vietnam and on the other side, it would become the kingdom of uh, Angkor. But what is interesting about this uh, kingdom and uh, lineage that they founded was that it was matriarchal which is not surprising because you have to remember that Kondinya became a king because of his marriage to a local woman. And so the lineage was matrilineal. And you find this female Naga matrilineal lineage popping up throughout uh, history. Not just, uh, just you know, you find people, uh, the, the, whoever became king is either the son or uh, the husband or nephew of one of these people from this Naga matrilineal line. And in fact, I, I, I argue that it is very likely that the Pallavas also became, uh, a, you know, got their royal legitimacy by virtue of a marriage to this same line. Fascinating. Uh, you know, the, this, this maritime province that India had uh, owes its, its, uh, its origins to the willingness of Indians of all castes uh, to travel, uh, uh, you know, overseas. And you, you bring this out very nicely in your book. And, and, you know, again, I don't know why this has been uh, so hugely ignored in our textbooks. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to get into that. But for example, you know, you, you take the example of uh, Rajendra Chola, who launched, as we uh, you know, know, some of us know that he launched a major naval attack on the Srivijaya kingdom of Sumatra and Java in, in, in 1025. But it is not as simple as it may sound, because even here, there was one heck of a major geopolitical game going on involving the Indians, the Chinese and the Srivijaya kingdom in the middle of it. And at the root of it was commerce. 
little different i you know i would submit from the geopolitics of today a thousand years later do you know tell us something about the indian connection here so one of the things that comes across very very clearly if you begin to actually read history is that the ancient and early medieval indians were very different in their world outlook than say what happened later on uh, and basically you get a very strong sense of very intrepid people people who are going outward dealing with the rest of the world uh, pushing out influence towards others but also absorbing influences um and risk takers of many kinds and basically these are people who are partaking of the world in multiple ways um whether it's geopolitics or commerce or whatever it is it's certainly not the people hiding behind walls trying to defend them their you know pure culture or whatever uh, this is clearly a people who are really robust bunch of people and that is comes through it you know one of the things i try to bring through into our book uh, in 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 my books um and of course there is rajendra chola uh, and the chola period which really brings uh, bring this out so for example if you were in the uh, you know 10th and 11th centuries world trade was all about this you know pipeline of commerce growing from the fatimid of egypt through the cholas and uh, southern india and out towards all the way to to china and at one point in time uh, thanks to uh, support from the chinese the shri vijaya of sumatra became excessively powerful and basically gained control of all the major trade routes particularly the two main ones going through malacca straits and through the sunda strait and what they began doing is began to extract high tariffs on the uh, you know indo chinese trade so what happens is that you know rajendra chola sends a warning uh, uh, raid but that clearly doesn't uh, impress the uh, sumatrans so he sends a much larger raid uh, in about 1025 uh, which basically makes its way from nagapatnam across the sea and then makes its way through the malacca strait essentially sacking all the shri vijaya ports and then finally defeats the main uh, army in kadaram in northern uh, malaysia and then comes back um now why why it's interesting is that it's it's you know uh, uh, you know the distances involved it's 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 a, it's a major uh, expedition given the technology of the times i mean much later of course the chinese few hundred years later the chinese would have do even larger uh, you know expeditions but for the time that was uh, really really uh, quite a, quite a adventurous uh, act so the point i'm making to you is that india was very much a part of the world in multiple ways and you basically had a people who were very much risk takers at multiple levels and uh you know uh, to to the size of these ships that sail basically you know the seas you write if and if i remember correctly is that uh, some of the largest chinese ships were more than 400 feet long and to and and to put that in uh, uh, you know in contrast the ships that uh, columbus sailed uh, with in uh, you know to to the us to americas the largest ship i i believe was less than 100 feet long If yeah but tells me right we are skipping time periods here so uh, when we are talking about these uh, you know grand treasure fleet of jung ho we are 400 years past rajendra chola so remember that right uh, so so you know time is passing and technologies are changing but yes 
in the early 1400s, the Chinese by, by a long, long margin, uh, far ahead of the Europeans. Um, and uh, they in fact came into the Indian Ocean and for a few decades, they dominated it at multiple levels. Um, they were changing kings in different places. They, they, they certainly uh, promoted the Thais against the Khmers. Uh, they promoted the uh, kingdom of Malacca against the Majapahit of uh, Java and so on. So they were playing geopolitical game and moving the chess, chess pieces around. But what happened is that back in China, the, geo, the, the internal politics changed. So suddenly the eunuchs who controlled the, the, the navy suddenly were out of favor and they were forced to withdraw. So thanks to domestic politics in China, the, there was a withdrawal of Chinese geopolitical power from the Indian Ocean, which interestingly opened up the space for the Europeans to come in. Fascinating. And, and you know, you, you write that uh, uh, India's maritime leadership was slowly lost out uh, to, to the Chinese and then the Arabs. And this happened because of the systematic destruction of temples by the Turks starting in the 11th century. And you write that finance was conducted from these temples was destroyed as the money was looted. And as a result, or maybe, you know, a coincident with that, the Indians uh, withdrew and ceded ground and it sort of remains a mystery. And you say that you have not been able to find an answer to as to you know, why this sort of a civilizational inward looking uh, tendencies developed. Do you, uh, you know, do you want to tell us uh, what reasons, did you come across any reasons in your studies? So, I have actually looked yeah, so, you know, so given the enormous amount of uh, maritime trade uh, that Indians were participating in every section of society from the, you know, the, the Brahmins were crossing the seas in order to take up uh, senior roles in, uh, in governments in the Southeast Asia. The, the, the traders, of course, were the, 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 the artisan class was benefiting from all the trade of cloth and so on. So everybody seemed to be benefiting from all this external trade. And it went on for, you know, a long, long time, uh, starting from the Bronze Age right up to, to, to basically about the 12th century. And then suddenly uh, the, uh, you know, the Indians disappear. Um, now, as I said, I had looked for an answer for this, but I'm not sure what the answer is because um, effectively what happens is that you have coincidentally to the, to the sacking of the temples, there is also this disappearance of Indians from the, um, uh, from the Indian Ocean world. But this is correlation. It's not obviously causation. Um, I, even if, let's say, the sacking of the temples messed up the financing system, um, uh, it still doesn't explain why uh, it continued to be the case, say, when the Vijayanagar Empire rose. So I think there was a genuine change in civilizational attitude, cultural attitude towards risk-taking. Um, I don't, this is not, I agree, it's a very unsatisfactory answer, but... Uh, uh, that's the, I know it's not an answer I, I claim to have, you know, clearly, uh, you know, uh, have come to. But it is true that for suddenly after the 12th century, uh, somewhere in the 13th century, we simply see Indians, I mean, I would, uh, let me qualify, Hindu Indians uh, withdraw from the, uh, you know, partaking of maritime activities. Some people do continue, by the way, it's not, a, it's not completely zero. I mean, the Kachis, for example, continue to, you know, uh, sale. But yeah, you know, um, you see a much bigger decline. 
but uh, you do see Muslim Indians continue to participate a lot more uh, uh, than the Hindus. So there is some continuation of that. Part of it, of course, is that they had their earlier links through with the Arabs, and you know, so so that that continued. Ah, okay. That forms a very nice segue to my next question, is uh, which is that for several centuries, right, that the Arabs were very successful in managing to conceal from the Europeans, you know, the secrets of their trade with India. So they had established themselves in the intermediaries and uh, they were very successful and, you know, both in, in the trade as well as protecting the trade secrets, so, you know, so, so to say. So when Vasco da Gama finally managed to find his way to India, he landed at Calicut, right? And uh, the, what, what, what was stunning was that the brutality and sadism of the Portuguese seems, you know, it, it's unnerving and you write how the Portuguese captured 10 ships in Calicut and burnt their crew in full view of the people ashore. And how on his second voyage to Calicut, Vasco da Gama captured 800 soldiers and had them killed by hacking off their arms, noses and ears. What explains the savagery? Because, uh, it, you know, it, it, at least reading from your book, commerce on the eastern shores of the Indian Ocean or you know, if you go to the east of India, it seems to have been largely devoid of such, uh, you know, such savage levels of violence. Why did, did you know, what are your thoughts on that, Sanjeev? So, uh, I mean, it's not like the Indian Ocean world wasn't, uh, you know, was devoid of savagery. I mean, we discussed Ashoka in the beginning. Uh, uh, so, there was periods of violence. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean world, at least the, the inland parts of it had experienced the Turkic and Mongol invasions, which had been pretty savage as well. But yes, the, the maritime world had been relatively more peaceful. And that changed with the Portuguese. And Portuguese are basically, you know, if you think, uh, you know, Chengiz Khan or Temur Lung, you know, Vasco de Gama is in the same league. And they basically carry out random massacres and their preferred tool of imposing their will is terror. Uh, and they systematically do it. It's partly driven by religious fervor of that time, uh, driven by the Spanish Inquisition and so on. But um, it's also partly, uh, you know, a, a, a tool of politics in the sense that there were very few ships dealing with a very large area. And so basically, I think what they were trying to do was make sure their savagery counted. And it's not very different, by the way, what the Mongols were doing. I mean, the Mongols were a very small number of people in the territories they had conquered. So terror was very much an important part of how they maintained their uh, you know, dominance. But yes, I mean, the Portuguese period, very often we now, thanks to the, you know, the, the British period that happened afterwards, we have forgotten in many ways the Portuguese period. But the Portuguese period was absolutely... Uh, incredible the amount of violence they wrought uh, on everybody. So, on 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 the same lines, you know, uh, we, we talk about the Portuguese, but uh, we again our history books have almost next to nothing to talk about the Maratha naval admiral Kano Giangre, who inflicted basically one humiliating naval defeat after another on the English, and for our viewers. For more than 50 years, till the middle of the 18th century, the English were almost, you know, mute spectators on the western seaboard of India because the East India Company, you write, assembled a large fleet in 1718 to attack Angre, but 
They had to call off the raid after just four days. It was a total and complete failure. In 1722, just four years later, this time you had a combined fleet from the Royal Navy, the East India Company, and uh, the Dutch, I believe, who attacked the Marathas, and they failed yet again. So, you know, if the British historians choose to dismiss uh, or refer to Kanoji Angre as a pirate, it is at least understandable. But what about our eminent historians? You know, this is not uh, a thousand or two thousand years back. These are events that are, you know, just uh, 300 years old. What, you know, so why? In, uh, so, uh, so I would like to qualify here. I mean, Kanoji Angre, uh, you know, did control a stretch of, uh, uh, of sea, but be clear, it was along the coast. Uh, if you went further away from the coast, uh, the English still controlled the seas. So he, he, his naval power was much more coastal. But nevertheless, it is true that he did have genuine uh, naval power along that Konkan coast. And he was, for periods of time, um, able to impose his will and extract tariffs and so on. Uh, and he was a genuine official of the Maratha Empire. So his being presented as some sort of a pirate is entirely unfair. Uh, later on, his his descendants did get you know have tiffs with the Maratha uh, authorities, and so maybe at a later time one can debate whether or not they were or were not. But certainly Kanoji Angre himself was a genuine official. He had genuine power, and uh, and uh, for a period of time he did genuinely control parts of the the coastline. Uh, now, why it, they have not been uh, you know brought up more in our history books is again a part of the same story. One an extreme, uh, you know, uh, Delhi-centric view of the world. And secondly, a continuation of many colonial era biases that we have continued. I mean, this is hardly the only one. I mean, the, uh, we continue to have racist theories like the Aryan invasion theory still in our textbooks. And there are many more. I mean, we, still, we will still use epithets like saying uh, Chanakya was the Machiavelli of India. I mean, why? So this is a part of the same problem in that we have continued after independence to basically continue to read our history as if we are not uh, telling our own story. Uh, so in fact, if you read the standard history books, you'll see they'll still talk about some Cunningham did this and Cunningham said that. Come on, you can go see the sites yourself today. Uh, why do you need to see what Cunningham thought about in 150 years ago? <laughs> so, uh, uh, Yes, I, I, I wanted to uh, bring uh, talk about one thing uh, which slipped my mind. Uh, yes, it is that for, for our viewers who have not yet read your book, uh, you do uh, dwell on, on the Aryan aspect also, and you uh, talk about recent uh, genetic studies and DNA studies that have come out that uh, should put, uh, you know, uh, to borrow a phrase, uh, the final nail in the coffin of that so-called invasion theory. But... I'm not going to get into that because I think there's a there's so much more that uh, is there in this book. So I will now talk about uh, the Khmers, who you say ruled much of modern day Cambodia, Thailand and Laos. And the Angkor Empire itself was founded by a person called, you know, named Jay Varman II, who you write conducted the Vedic ceremony that allowed him to declare himself a Chakravarti Samrat. But the temple of Angkor Wat was built only some three centuries later in the 12th century by Suryavarman II. Now, you had talked about uh, you know, your interest in, in complex adaptive systems and urban, uh, and, and, and urban agglomerations. And you write that at its peak, 
Angkor was the largest urban agglomeration in the world and where commerce was conducted. And this was a huge surprise to me, mostly by women. And you yeah. speculate that Angkor finally died out because of a scarcity of water. Recent LIDAR studies uh, have expanded our knowledge of Angkor, but can you tell our viewers uh, more on, on you know, the, the fall of Angkor and what you know, possibly uh, modern day relevance we can draw from it? So, uh, you know, individual countries of that time, uh, basically we are talking about the 15th century, this is the 1400s. And within a few decades, you have clear de decline in all the major uh, Hindu Buddhist kingdoms of that region. Now, individual cases, there is obviously, they get, you know, Angkor gets sacked by the Thais, the, the Viets sack uh, the Chams, and so on and so forth. But the question is, why do all these kingdoms fall apart so quickly after having existed for over a thousand years at about the same time? And I'm speculating here, so I don't have a full answer, but there is some evidence to show that one of the reasons that Angkor in particular fell apart and possibly Java, it had something to do with their hydraulics uh, falling up, the hydraulics on which rice irrigation ran, uh, falling apart for some reason. So this is still speculative. There is some uh, evidence from climate studies and ground uh, looking at the ground surveys and so on. Uh, so it is still speculative, but there is some reason to believe that they may have been a climate change element to it, that for a few decades, uh, rainfall may have gone awry, there may have been long droughts. And so all these rice-based uh, civilizations basically fell apart. So this is uh, interesting because, you know, even Vijay, uh, you know, the empire of Vijayanagar and Hampi had a hugely you know, massive uh, uh, irrigation system in, in place to get, uh, you know, water from the Tungabhadra River into the mostly, you know, rocky areas. But uh, coming back to, you know, to India, uh, again, you know, to talk about the British, uh, we all sort of uh, read at some point or the other that, uh, you know, Robert Clive, the architect of the, uh, of the victory, of the English victory in the Battle of Plassey was corrupt and he, uh, you know, was tried when he went back to England. But this corruption seems to have been much more pervasive in the East India Company, and you and you write it, it might have been because of the low salaries and the and the temptations to do private trade. But my question is that in all of this corruption, there is again, uh, you know, I'll use the word use it again so many times, but I think it's still fascinating that connects a U.S. Ivy League University's founding, the East India Company, and the governor of Madras to all together. You know who I'm talking about? Yes, of course. So uh, it's quite interesting if you read the history of the East India Company, you get a very different impression uh, than the one you would by reading Indian views of the matter. And here I think it's very instructive to read the Western uh, view of what was going on then. Because we tend to have this view that it was a well-oiled machine that was slowly gobbling up India. But in fact, what was going on, it was actually a bunch of uh, really corrupt adventurers who had turned up in Asia, uh, had access to this big machine called the East India Company, uh, but were basically doing, using it for their own benefits. So, uh, of course, many of them do get, uh, you know, including Clive and Warren Hastings, etc., did get uh, um, you know, prosecuted for corruption and so on. 
But of course, there were several others and it, it was blatantly done. Um, and you have, for example, Yale, who was the governor of uh, uh, Madras, who uh, accumulated a huge amount of wealth um, from private trade, but also siphoning out money from, you know, from the Madras uh, municipal coffers, I presume, and, and did all kinds of things and basically became very rich and you had to be ultimately removed. Uh, and then he left behind this money, which got used to build the Yale University in the U.S., um, which is why I think in a, people from Chennai should insist on being given uh, scholarships when they go to study in Yale because they can claim that it was actually their money in the first place. Uh, for a minute, I thought you were going to refer to the R, to, to the dreaded R word, but uh, it's good you chose the next alphabet, which is uh, you know scholarship. Uh, and I, again, you know uh, the. There was a long-standing battle for the control of India between the English and the Portuguese and the French and the Dutch for many years. And we learned that, again, you know, English rule in India was cemented with the 1757 Battle of Plassey. But that is a battle that the English won. And we learn, however, almost next to nothing about, to say, the Dutch, who were as active in South Asia as the English. And again, you know, I'll, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this uh, gentleman who was responsible for delivering this crushing blow to the Dutch 16 years be uh, before the Battle of Plassey, I think in, in 1741. So what is interesting here is that, you know, the Battle of Plassey itself was no more than a skirmish. I mean, basically nothing much happened. <laughs> and the, re the reason that the, the East, English East India Company suddenly became so powerful after that uh, was because the conditions were already in place for uh, their takeover. And uh, they had already gotten rid of, of course, they had uh, already managed to weaken the French. But actually, the real guys who, who were a threat to them had always been the Dutch and not so much the French. Uh, and the Dutch, remember, uh, through the 1600s had basically, uh, and into the early 1700s, had cemented their position as being by long margin the most powerful uh, multinational uh, organization in the world, the Dutch East India Company, also called the VOC, and they had taken over. Uh, uh, they had taken over what is now Indonesia. Um, they had taken over Sri Lanka, and they were now basically trying to cement their position along the west coast, which was the pepper growing areas of Kerala. When they came across, uh, came upon this uh, young king of a very small kingdom called Martanda Varma. And Martanda Varma basically decided to challenge them. And so the Dutch sent in uh, their marines uh, at, at a place called Kolachal, uh, which is just north of Kanyakumari. And uh, the Dutch then they made their way inland uh, to uh, Padmanavapuram, where the capital of. <coughs> of uh, uh, Martanda Varma, but Martanda Varma defeated them and then chased them back to Kolacha where he defeated them again. And as a result of that, um, the Dutch were so badly defeated uh, that they never recovered again. Um, in fact, he defeated them a few more times after this as well. But this was the main one. And then from that point onwards, the Dutch went into decline. Now, this is a major event in world history. It's not just in Indian history. Because after this, the next time that a European power was defeated by an Asian power was in 1905, when the Japanese defeated the Russians in a naval battle. Now, all history books around the world teach you about this, but nobody tells you that 
you know, little less than two centuries earlier, Martanda Varma had uh, done the same thing. And so it is, it is quite amazing that we Indians, I mean, unless you happen to be from Southern Kerala, you probably have never heard of Martanda Varma. And yet he's such an important person. Fascinating. You know, it would seem that our colonial uh, hangover in education still continues to the day. Uh, while we are talking about uh, uh, these colonial powers, uh, there is, uh, you know, I'd like you to touch upon one last engrossing, very engrossing interconnected thread that contains uh, in it the theft of textile technology, evangelism, the English, the opium wars, and I think the founding of Singapore. All five events are interconnected, and uh, I had not, uh, uh, you know, thought of putting the threads together till uh, you know I read about that in your book. Yeah, I mean, uh, the European colonial uh, experience, uh, while they tried to put it as a civilizing mission to justify it to themselves and to people back home, basically it was about uh, you know industrial espionage. It was about corruption. It was about drug running, massacres, and all kinds of things. I mean, it was basically a criminal enterprise um, being carried out on a gigantic scale, um, in which, incidentally, so, you know, people of this part of the world sometimes participated in uh, enthusiastically and benefited from. So it's not like you know there were some Indians and there were some Chinese who benefited from it too. But anyway, the net result of this big sort of exercise was that you ended up basically changing the landscape of this part of the world. So, for example, as you mentioned, Singapore, where I am right now, um, is a result of a British attempt to create a, a naval base so that the Dutch could did not shut off their trade routes to taking opium from India to uh, China. But incidentally, that is also true of Hong Kong because Hong Kong was also set up as an opium. So basically, they took this opium past uh, Singapore and then took it to Hong Kong from where they traded it inland. Um, so you know, Hong Kong and Singapore both are a result, direct result of uh, drug running. Uh, I think we have, uh, you know, we could spend a long, long time you know, talking about all of these fascinating episodes in your book. I uh, will leave it to our viewers and readers to, to, to read your book. I wanted to uh, ask you, you have evidently traveled to several of the places you write about, right? And so tell us firstly, as someone who visited these places as an author, what was your experience? And secondly, for you know, someone who reads your book and then ends up visiting these places uh, that, that you write about in your book, what would your suggestion be for those uh, people, you know, how, how to make the most of those experiences rather than you know, read the plaques that they are, take some uh, selfies, photographs, and then you know, on to the next uh, tourist spot? Well, I think selfies and photographs are important. Otherwise, if you don't Twitter it, how, do you, how can you prove you ever went there? But uh, jokes apart, uh, I think it's very important to visit, touch and feel the places. And uh, you don't necessarily have to go off to some remote place. I mean, I have visited many places uh, along this and I enjoyed it. I, you know, places like Zanzibar. I drove along the uh, coast of Oman. I drove down the Kerala coast and up the Tamil coast. I visited many, many places along the coast of Odisha and so on, and all over Southeast Asia and so on. And you, I hope I have given you a flavor of some of these places. So when you read my books, hopefully you will get a flavor of uh, these places. 
Um, but I think you don't have to go to remote places. I mean, many of the places I mentioned are in large cities, possibly the ones you're sitting in right now. Uh, if you happen to be on a coastal city, I mean, the, there are places in Mumbai that are, you know, linked to this story, um, which you can see, I talk about David Sassoon's home, which is now a hospital in Bombay. You can go and see it. Uh, there are many places in, uh, in Chennai that I mentioned that you can go and see. Uh, so I'm trying to encourage people to engage again with their history. Um, it's not something that just happened. It's part of who we are. And it's important to experience it. You know, you, you're right. I, uh, you talk about uh, uh, Kanchipuram. In fact, I think in the introduction of your book itself, you talk about uh, uh, you know, a gathering of the important people in Kanchipuram that uh, led to a uh, you know, voyage across the seas. And I'll you know, again let people read that. But uh, you mentioned uh, you know, driving along the coast of Oman. And there's one more question that, uh, that I have uh, that I must ask, which is that you know, most of us, most of Indians know about the Portuguese only by their occupation of Goa. There are several other aspects of, uh, you know, Portuguese, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a colonial power in India. And I particularly like the one where that you describe in your book about an Indian trader who was responsible for the eviction of the Portuguese from Oman in the 17th century. It's a I mean, if had I read it elsewhere, I would have read that as the plot of some, uh, you know, a uh, very, very over-imaginative, uh, you know, Bollywood writer. But tell, tell us about uh, that. Actually, fact is always more fun than fiction. There are so, you know, the Indian Ocean history is full of uh, over-the-top characters, you know, warrior princes, pirates of all kinds. And of course, you, you, are, you are referring here to the story of Naruttam. So Naruttam was a merchant who was, you know, he was a, most likely a Kachi Gujarati who was supplying... Uh, providing supplies to the uh, Portuguese uh, fort at um, Muscat. And basically what happened is that he had a beautiful daughter and the local Portuguese uh, commander basically wanted to marry her. Uh, and neither the father nor the uh, daughter were very keen on this. So unfortunately, they didn't have much choice. And after much cajoling, Naruttam said that, okay, um, I will organize a grand wedding. So give me some time to organize the wedding and then you can marry her. Um, but what he really did was use the opportunity to remove all the supplies from the fort. Uh, and then he informed the Omanis that he, the, the Portuguese were not in a position to defend the fort because they didn't have any supplies. And so the Omanis attacked and took over the fort. And this is how the Portuguese were evicted from Muscat. Now, as I said, there are such stories everywhere in, in the history of the Indian Ocean. And, uh, you know, I wish, it, it, I wish they found more of them found their way, not just in the textbooks, but into the general knowledge uh, and awareness. Because this is really the story of, you know, uh, that makes, gives, gives color to, you know, to what was going on. These are real people with real problems, real, um, real uh, you know, and they, many take, taking chances and, you know, doing things, extraordinary things uh, at many levels. Indeed. In, in fact, uh, uh, I think, it, and also I'll say this for the benefit of our viewers is that having read the book, I would say that uh, it is written in, in a style that is very conducive for, I think, uh, uh, middle school graders also to read. And uh, there is absolutely nothing in it, which is very, you know, uh, uh, written in a very dry and, and terse uh, academic manner. 
Uh, I certainly intend to do that to have uh, you know my you know at least my elder daughter read it. Uh, I think it will form some sort of a, a relief from the from what she's reading in our history books as of now. But so thank you for that, Sanjeev. My last question is before we open this up for Q and A is that what next? You you know you are a self-confessed cartophile. Can we expect a more map theme book uh, on history and geography, or what is it that you're working on next? Ah, uh, difficult question. Uh, I'm not thinking of writing immediately. I do have a 50% finished book of short stories, satirical short stories, which I may work on. So that's a completely different genre. Or I may work on something on uh, economic theory. I know it sounds boring, but I'll try and make it as interesting as possible. <laughs> I have somewhat heretical views on economic theory, which I may put down on paper. Okay. In either case, I think we'll uh, we'll look uh, forward to it. Uh, which brings me to the end of uh, my Q and A. Uh, I would, uh, if people have any questions on uh, you know that they want to ask, they can send them uh, uh, over the chat window. Uh, you can obviously ask uh, Sanjeev questions via Twitter. He is uh, 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 on Twitter, and I believe your Twitter handle is, uh, is Sanjeev Sanyal, all one word, right? Yeah. And now, how do I see the questions? Do so I click on the. If you click, click on. on the Right. If you click on the chat, uh, uh, you know, icon at the bottom of your uh, conferencing uh, toolbar, I will go through it and uh, I'll see if there are questions that have come in. Uh, yeah, well, you might be faster at looking at. So. Uh, okay, I'm going through that. Thanks, uh, Ajahn. Uh, that's a real sign. Okay. Uh, Okay, so Ram Rani ji has a question. She says, pirates were supposed, were supported by the British crown to attack Spanish ships carrying New World gold. These officially supported pirates were the manpower that formed the East India Company. Well, no surprise there given, uh, uh, you know, the Robert Clives and the others. But, uh, uh, okay, so the question. Yes. Yeah, by the way, my book does uh, talk about uh, Henry Every. Yes. Uh, who was a privateer. Uh, as you described, uh, who was actually was being sent by the British crown to carry out pirate raids on the Spanish, but decided that it was much more fun to carry out pirate raids in the Arabian Sea. And I do describe that he actually carried out the biggest haste in, in pirate history when he took over a, one of Aurangzeb's ships and emptied it out of all the treasure. And then he disappeared. And he inspired, consequently, a generation of uh, a generation of pirates, which who became such a nuisance that the British themselves had to put them down. Captain Kidd and all those guys, Blackbeard, all of them were inspired by Henry Every. Okay, so I have one question that has come up, which, uh, which is a very interesting one. It's uh, uh, the question is from uh, Sridhar, and he says that uh, Sanjeev, when you interacted with the millions, did they show signs of being aware of the rich history as you described? Since Tamil Nadu is being ruled for the past 50 years by Dravidian parties, I expect at least Tamil Nadu not being Delhi-centric uh, to study their history. Or it says, I expect at least Tamil Nadu not to be Delhi-centric in the study of their history, if I read the question right. Well, uh, yeah, well I agree that, that in the region that you go to, there is some awareness of some of the people I talk about. So. You know, if I go and talk about Karavela in Odisha, they will know about Karavela, but nobody else will. So same thing is true. Yes, of course, the Tamils are aware of the Cholas and, and Pallavas, 
But I think one of the things that came together from hopefully my book, uh, which I got feedback from a lot of people, was suddenly they felt that, you know, these were not isolated characters working, you know, happened to be there. Suddenly you could see that they were part of a network, that they were part of the grander geopolitics or grander action that is happening. So I think the thing that the penny dropped in some ways for many people, that what the wider context was. And, you know, so that I think was something that in many, many cases, not just in Tamil Nadu, that, that I think people took away from the book. Uh, having said that, I would say that uh, although I've written a lot about the coastal areas, my characterization of these people would not make uh, Dravidian parties or any other kind of cultural uh, purists very happy because my book is about churn. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Sangam people who are seen as the pristine Dravidians that many people, the Dravidian movement may be proud of, uh, in my books is a completely different book type of people. They are much more open, mixed, traveling, uh, in fact, accepting all kinds of uh, non-Dravidian uh, um, influences with ease. Uh, in fact, they would have laughed at this business of Dravidian purity um, because the traditional view of the Dravidians of that time or the Tamils of that time is that in fact, the Tamil language itself was standardized by Rishi Agastya who was from the north. One of their greatest kings, you know, Nandi Varman II was Cambodian. Yes. So, it, so consequently, using my writings to glorify some pristine past is not going to help you. Well, given that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the Aryan Dravidian theory itself is, is, is you know, the story of myth, but uh, we'll, again, uh, we'll not talk about that. Uh, there, Okay, the questions are coming in fast and you know, thick and fast now. Uh, one question is, what do you think is needed in terms of theoretical or methodological changes in the study of human history? Or do you think it is merely an ideological, that is a regressive left issue? Well, see, all history is written from some perspectives. So we need some framework. Uh, so I'm not surprised that people use different frameworks, but, you know, we now, the point is that these frameworks need to be updated as we go through time. You know, we, after all, we are not looking at the world using, uh, you know, uh, you do, we don't do quantum physics using Newtonian frameworks. We have got new frameworks of thinking. I have given one example, which I use in other fields called the complex adaptive system framework, which is derived from chaos theory. Uh, it fits my way of thinking about the world. Others can take other ways of thinking about the world. But I do think that there is one area where you cannot have compromise. So while you can debate the interpretation of data, the, the, there has to be a much greater emphasis on evidence. One of the major problems is not even ideological, but uh, simply not updating data. We are still stuck with, you know, old data, 100-year-old data, which was dug up by Cunningham or somebody like that. But, you know, frankly, where do you see genetic data or climate change data, or new archaeological data in our textbooks. You don't. I and mean, I'm not talking about school textbooks. I'm talking about, you know, master's level textbooks. Don't have anything on recent archaeological digs of the last 20, 30 years. Uh, so this is a serious issue. And history is not ultimately about, uh, you, know, blind, you know, sitting and blindly interpreting a bunch of static facts. Like any other field of work, the facts are themselves evolving. 
Uh, and so we have to keep at least updating the evidence. Uh, it's not like just because I have written what is there, it's going to be true. I'm sure there'll be in the future other data that will come up. This has to be a constantly, like any other field of study, has to be constantly updated. Absolutely. That's a, that's a long topic in itself. Uh, one, okay, the next question is, are you giving any book talks in Hyderabad? What, sorry? Are you giving any book talk in Hyderabad? I know I have been threatened with this a few times. <laughs> I do not have a plan, but I will, I will make one. I've just done a very exhausting uh, nationwide tour, which for a variety of reasons didn't end up including uh, Hyderabad. But it is something that I, uh, I'm conscious of and I will do something about it. Okay. I, may, I will be later in this week in Vishakhapatnam, but for a conference on urban issues. <laughs> okay. That's... Not Hyderabad. But yeah, I, I will do something. I promise. Uh, I'll, there are still questions coming in. I'll, I'll take, we are running out of time. I'll take two more and I'll uh, send you the rest, uh, uh, you know, separately. Uh, one is talking about Urissa and Bengal. How is it that both states share similar culinary cultures, but little common in, in other spheres? Example, the script is entirely different. What change in medieval Odisha or Bengal that is responsible? Actually, uh, well, the script is entirely different, but almost everything else is very similar. Um, and the script is, of course, derived from further south. So, of course, that's not surprising. Urisa is stuck between uh, the, the south and Bengal, and so falls in the sort of the mixed zone. But it is true that, uh, you know, not just culinary. I mean, the Uriya language is extremely close to Bengali. I can understand sort of 60-70% of it. Um, so... So it's, they are very, very strong uh, links uh, going back a long time. Um, so it's not surprising. But in fact, this is, not, this is true in many ways across India. The culture changes is not, it's very rarely very sudden and discreet. Uh, you, for example, you, know, you hear you know, the Vindhyas, above the Vindhya and below the Vindhya, major changes happen. In fact, that is geographically not true. Um, if you, first of all, because if you've seen the Vindhyas, any of you, they are very low hills. They, you know, even a five-year-old can walk over them. So they're simply not going to be a major, you know, uh, cultural or commercial or political barrier, first of all. Secondly, nothing much happens between Gwalior and Bhopal, which are on either side of the Vindhyas. Mm. Okay. You will see changes in any axis in India. You know, there is equal change happening between Gujarat and Manipur. In fact, more changes perhaps. So any axis you take of India, with time, as distance goes, with changes happen. But if changes are relatively smooth, even in Hyderabad, you have a huge amount of North American, North Indian influence, right? So it's not a sudden change. It's a, it's a, dis, it's a, it's a flowing change, which, which happens. And so this is also true of Odisha Bengal. Indeed. Uh, I, I had deliberately left out any questions on the RN invasion, all those theories, but one question has come in and I'll read it out. Hi Sanjeev, I still haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I did read the Razib Khan's uh, review of the book and Razib Khan is a, fam is a famous genealogist. He says your support of OIT, which I think means out of India theory might be a bit presumptuous. Do you think the jury is still out on it? And will Rakhi Gadi answer that AIT, OIT question or is the book closed in your view? Nothing is closed because evidence is always accumulating. 
nothing, not, no part of my book I consider as closed. All evidence is always, so that's one thing let me get. By the way, Razid Khan is a friend of mine. Uh, he'll be very pleased to hear that he's considered a uh, famous uh, geneticist. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, so we, the two of us disagree on many things and we go back and forth. Um, he, he, his uh, disagreements with my data, by the way, are based on his own interpretation of data, which I pointed out has not been published. So as far as published data is concerned, which he himself, by the way, in that same blog, he makes the point on published papers, he cannot uh, punch a hole in my argument. Now, if he publishes a paper, which has a different view, I will consider it. Uh, but he doesn't, he himself could not uh, cite a single paper that he, he, that there is published on, uh, which, which negated what I had said. Uh, I mean, in that blog also, he says so. Um, so that's one. Secondly, Rakhi Gidi may or may not. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's, it's one data point more. And I think uh, people are fixating on, uh, on, on, we'll tell you about, it'll tell you about two people and the ge genetics of two people. My guess is that the, the, the Harappans were a mixed lot. They were not pure civilization any more than the Dravidians were, or the sort of Sangam people were. They are all mixed. And you will find out who was there. We won't tell you who was not there. Exactly. I think people have, my guess is, uh, have caught my, on. My guess, is, yeah, my guess is that you will discover that, uh, that the people whose genes are found, you know, their descendants are still living in and around Haryana. Indeed. So that brings me to the end of our uh, uh, of our webinar. So again, Sanjeev, thank you so much for staying up late. It's uh, close to midnight now. And thank you everyone for uh, joining in. I will post the video up on YouTube uh, in a day or so. And thank you again, Sanjeev, and goodbye. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.